1 Timothy 3, so please turn to 1 Timothy 3, we'll be looking at, uh, verse 16 will be the main focus, Uh, but I'd like us to look uh, as well at verses 14 and 15. So 1 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 14. Uh, I'll give a reading that's uh, slightly different than the ESV. Uh, I do use the ESV. Uh, In fact, I think my reading is in the footnotes of the ESV. I'm going with their footnoted version rather than the the one there. But uh, it's a slight, slight little difference that I'll come back to later. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. May God bless now the reading and preaching of his word. It occurred to me (laughs) just this afternoon after I, earlier in the week, sent out my sermon text and all that, that they probably heard a sermon on this passage not so long ago when Miller did 1 Timothy. So uh, I hope I have something new and refreshing to to bring and and that there can be some encouragement uh, this is truly, I think I say this every time I preach, but this is truly one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I love it to death. And so, yes, I want us to look at verse 16, but spend a little time uh, thinking about verses 14 and 15, because 14 and 15 give us the context for the, quite a, uh, a wonderful treasure trove of what we see in verse 16. In verses 14 and 15, we learn Uh, that Paul writes Timothy so that he and others will know how to behave in the house of God. And I do prefer that house uh, a little more than the household of the ESV. It's a house. It's a building that's in view. That's clear even from the passage itself. This building having pillars and a buttress. Uh, Paul's use of the pillar and buttress tells us, in fact, what kind of building, what kind of house it is. What kind of religious building has pillars? Uh, It is a temple. And in using that language, Paul helps Timothy to remember that in Christ, in Christ, the church is the fulfillment of that great building which uh, he began to build in the Old Testament. Not just a a building of stone, but... uh, the building of his people. Now, the church is filled with that glory spirit, which we used to see in the Old Testament. It would come down and would hover over the temple or fill the temple. But now that glory spirit of God comes and fills uh, Christ, first and foremost, as Christ receives the spirit. And then as Christ gives the spirit in Pentecost, the temple, who is the church, is filled with God's presence, the house of God. But the language of temple here is, and and the imagery of temple, is fitting not just because of those things in the Old Testament, which in Christ the church fulfills, but it's also appropriate given where Timothy was doing ministry. Uh, 
it, ma- it mattered for Timothy. Where did Timothy uh, minister? And you probably remember from, um, uh, from our dear brother when he preached here, when Miller preached, uh, he, he ministered in Ephesus. Uh, and so I'm just realizing, okay, uh, I better turn this page over. <laughs> I don't ever, I never print on the back of my pages, but this time it happened. Um, very good. And backwards too. Uh, so, uh, yes, where did Timothy pastor? He pastored in Ephesus. Now, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Ephesus, among other things, was famous for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world which was this magnificent temple. Not the temple to the living and true God, but the temple of Artemis. In fact, maybe you remember in, um, in, in Acts uh, chapter 18 there, there's a story about how when Paul goes to uh, Ephesus and is preaching and he's having great success, in fact, uh, so much so that many people came out and took their, their sorcery books and were burning them. Uh, but there was a bit of a problem because there was this fellow by the name of Demetrius who made his living by selling these little silver shrines of the great temple that was there, of Artemis's temple. And he says, uh, not only is this guy Paul going to bring disrepute on, our, on, our, on Artemis, but on this great temple uh, through which we make our, our livelihood. And so you may remember, they stand and they chant against Paul. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, as Paul writes Timothy, he certainly doesn't say great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but I think there's a reverberation of that whole episode. He says great is the mystery of godliness. As he relates the mystery of godliness to the temple of the true and living God, the house of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, to sort of put this in context, Paul says, I write you to know how you ought to behave. There's a pastoral issue going on here. Uh, How ought you to behave? What kind of behavior is appropriate in God's house? Well, we might say godly behavior. We might say godliness In fact, that is what is in view, the mystery of godliness. And clarifying this issue of godliness would be of particular importance for Paul because apparently in Ephesus, there were other people who had an idea of how to attain godliness, and their their view was not a good one. Uh, The false teachers who we see coming into view in chapter 4, basically, if if you thought of godliness as being spiritual, and there's a truth to that, right? They would say you get spiritual by staying away from the physical. Now, we probably shouldn't even polarize physical and spiritual, but they did. And so in chapter 4, you see, for example, you hear about certain people uh, saying that you should uh, abstain from marriage and certain foods, and Paul says, well, that's not God's teaching That's the doctrine of demons. (laughs) So you don't want to go down that path to godliness. There's another path that we want to pursue uh, that is here before us. Not uh, becoming spiritual by staying away from the physical. In fact, as we look at our passage, one thing you could say is Paul's going to say, 
You can't be spiritual without the physical. Now, why do I say that? Because what is the first line in what I believe is a hymn, a stanza? We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Is that he, the mystery of godliness, was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, as we go on, I want to focus on verse 16. Uh, it is important for you to see that most scholars, and I believe that there is something to this, believe that verse 16 uh, is, is, is written in a special way that indicates that um, either through Paul's penning it to the church and using it, or maybe it was even in use prior to Paul uh, writing this, and maybe he was simply capitalizing on the church's common confession. The verse 16 appears hymnic, if I can put it that way, like a, like a hymn uh, or a song or a creed or a confession. Notice the very structured parallel way it's, it stands. You can see it even in English. Six stanzas. He was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. He was taken up in glory. Uh, moreover, that hymnic, that creedal quality of verse 16 comes out, even in the ESV, as we see uh, these three words. It's one word in Greek, but in the English it gives us three. Uh, Indeed, we confess. In Greek, the word, you could maybe translate it confessedly. The New American Standard actually translates it by common confession. This is very helpful, by the way, because we, saw, we call ourselves a confessional church, don't we? Confessing the faith isn't something that started in the 16th or 17th centuries. The original confession, if you want to go back to the Old Testament, is, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one Lord. And then the New Testament, the confession is, Jesus is Lord. And then we see a, a confessional, creedal sense growing uh, in a passage like this, again, whether Paul wrote it or uh, it was in use in the church and he uh, inscripturates it now through, through putting it here, uh, we don't know for sure. And so uh, as we look at this passage today, uh, I won't be able to get to all of it. I, feel, I would feel a bit rushed running through all six stanzas, so I'm going to try and deal with the first two. And Lord willing, I'll come back in a month's time and I'll deal with the rest of them. So let's look at the first two, and uh, as we begin to look at those, I need to deal, first of all, with the business of the mystery of godliness, and what is meant by the word mystery. And you may say, well, maybe you can't even say, because it's a mystery, right? <laughs> but I think we can say something about this, because um, Paul uses that word mystery, mysterion, quite a few times in his writings. A few examples you could look at would be Romans 16.25, Ephesians 3.9, Colossians 1.26. And in those three passages, he uses the word consistently to show that mystery is not something like it was for the ancient uh, Greek mystery religions. They reveled in mysteries in things which were unknown and unknowable, irrational almost. They reveled in the irrational mystery of it. That's not what Paul has in view. He has in view something... Uh, for Paul, a mystery is something which was once hidden, 
but is now revealed. It has a mysterious character because at one time it had a, a relatively hidden character. And so mystery is not used in a sense of one's personal understanding, but it's used in a decidedly historical sense. That which was mysterious in the past, but now not so, not so much. What was it, or rather who was it, that was relatively speaking, not completely, not absolutely, but relatively mysterious, but is now clearly revealed? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and that's going to be the way all the way through here. Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that is so important to see then as we think about this is that not only the mystery, but the mystery of godliness, the godliness part of it, it's not found in a principle. Godliness is not found in a principle. Godliness is not found in a program. You know, go carry out the ascetic principles. Do not touch, do not taste, and you'll be godly, right? No. Godliness is found in a person. And if you want godliness, you must abandon all man-made principles and programs, and you must possess the person of verse 16. But what's interesting about verse 16 it's not just bound up in a person, that's true so far, but it's also bound up in what happened to that person, in what happened to that person. Um, why do I say that? Why do I say it's bound up in what happened to that person? Uh, because the first thing that Paul says about the mystery of godliness is that um, he was manifested in the flesh. Let's see now. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm getting all carried away in these notes that are, are, are I, I printed out in the wrong order. Um, okay, okay, I'm, I'll get myself back on the right page here. Yeah, all right, so why is it that we um, need to focus on uh, Christ and what happened to him? Well, well, we'll look a little bit more at that in just a moment. Now, of course, I'll go on to say it's not just what happened to Christ. We must possess him. So godliness can't just be had because things happened to Christ. We must ourselves come into possession of the one who is the mystery of godliness. But it's very interesting that Paul, unlike just about any other writer, doesn't focus on godliness by focusing on what happens to us. He focuses on what happens to Christ. And so let's look at that first stanza. He was manifested in the flesh. Now that statement, he was manifested in the flesh, is so wonderful. And it entails the fact that he existed before he was manifested in the flesh, doesn't it? It entails that. You could say of Adam York, uh, maybe uh, Steve, or Phil, or Mark, that uh, they were manifested to you in the flesh. And that would be true. But it wouldn't really be very remarkable, would it? You know, How else would we be manifested to you? <laughs> uh, but there is something very wonderful and majestic and mysterious 
about this one being manifested in the flesh. Because this one who comes to be manifested in the flesh was God. God came to be manifested in the flesh. What a great mystery there is in that. Now, please pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. While these words manifested in the flesh deal with the incarnation, and I preach this as a Christmas sermon, they don't deal with just the incarnation. And they don't deal with the incarnation as just a concept or an idea, a static thought. And they certainly don't deal with Christ merely as a baby in a manger. I'm absolutely certain that these words, he was manifested in the flesh, refer to the entirety of his life from birth up to and including his death on the cross. I'm absolutely certain of that. Why am I so certain? Well, let me explain. First of all, you'll notice that in this great statement of the faith, of this common confession, do you see any reference in here, any explicit reference to the cross? No. That, does that strike you as incredibly odd? Uh, somewhat ludicrous that in a great confessional, early creedal confessional statement, there's no, there's no mentioning of the cross. Well, I said there is no explicit mention of the cross. It is most certainly implicit. It is most certainly implied. The reason why it's implicit rather than explicit is because Paul is setting forth in a very terse way, a very compact form, the entirety of of two distinct phases, two distinct um, parts of the Messiah's work for his people. He sets forth an earthly phase, which includes the cross, and then he sets forth a heavenly phase. And next week when I come back, we're going to see that there's a, there's a dialogue back and forth between an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective as we work our way through the rest of this creed. And if you don't understand Paul as doing this, as contrasting two distinct phases as a whole, a whole earthly phase, inc including the cross, as opposed to a heavenly phase, a heavenly ministry, then uh, you'll be, and I'll be, in the very odd position of having one of the earliest Christian creeds stating what Christ did, uh, not having the cross uh, anywhere. No, it's there, but it's implicit. It includes, the cross is included in his being manifested in the flesh. And really that ought to somewhat immunize us. I know Christmas is gone, but if I can make one kind of Christmas application still, uh, to immunize us, I think, from what is a common misunderstanding around Christmas time. I'm speaking about the idea that the, the incarnation should be set forth as a thing in itself and by itself that could be of any use to you whatsoever. Now, please uh, hear me very carefully. Um, I'm not saying that there is not a place to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. But what I'm saying is that as we do that, as we memorialize uh, that, and we had Christmas celebrations at my home and in our church, we must never sever the incarnation 
from the entirety of the work of that Savior, from that Savior's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. See, the Jesus who is reduced only to a little cuddly baby in a manger, that Jesus can do nothing to save you. Only the Jesus who was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit can save you. There is a church which tends to celebrate the incarnation as a thing unto itself. But it is not the Protestant church. It tends to be the Roman church, and not just at Christmas time, but all the year in its Eucharistic um, mass. The Protestant church has thought of Christ quite differently. The incarnation just by itself is of no value to you. Only an incarnated Savior who dies and rises on your behalf is a benefit to you. And so, yes, 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 you need the mystery of godliness who was manifested in the flesh, but not a God who merely becomes like you, a God who becomes like you so that he may die for you and rise for you. The fact that he was manifested in the flesh, the fact that that includes his death on the cross, uh, becomes even more clear when we compare it with that next statement. He was justified in the spirit. And again, I'm using, uh, the, I'm using the language from the footnote of the ESV. He was justified in the spirit rather than he was vindicated in the spirit. Why am I, why am I going with that? Um, well, uh, by the way, just so you don't think it's a novel idea that, that I came up with, uh, unless you think the King James Version is novel, the 17th century translation, it, it read, Christ was justified in the Spirit. I understand why some translations are fearful of speaking of Jesus being justified. Justification has to do with sin. And there's a sense that we want to shrink away from that because we serve a sinless Savior. However, there are two reasons why you really, really need to understand that the language of justification is entirely appropriate. And the first reason is a very simple uh, uh, language reason, that the word here for justify is the same word translated every time when it speaks of our justification. It's the same Greek word. But I think uh, more importantly is that we need to understand this. Even though Christ had no sin of his own that he needed to be justified from, what happened to him at the cross? Was it the case that on the cross Jesus Christ had no association with sin? Of course not. Though he had no sin of his own at the cross, Jesus became saddled with sin. He was saturated with sin, as it were. Not his own sin, but the sin of his people. There on the cross, in a quintessential sense, Jesus became the vicarious sinner. And therefore, that declaration that Christ receives on the cross, you can think of it as a divine declaration. You die. You are an accursed damnable sinner. That is a declaration that Jesus needed to be justified from, isn't it? In fact, this idea of Jesus becoming 
you know, a, um, a representative center on the cross is found most clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to these words. Paul says there regarding Christ, regarding the sinless Savior, that God made him to be sin. He made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you believe that? The sinless Savior became sin. The sinless Savior is made to be sin itself on the cross, which is to say, again, he is made to be the vicarious, the representative sinner for his people. And that is why we must not. We must not shy away from the idea of saying that Jesus Christ needed to be justified, justified in the spirit, not of his own sin, but of that sin laid upon him of which he became the, the guilt bearer. Was that verdict given to him on the cross, guilty, damnable sinner, was that verdict ever overturned? If it never was, then you and I have a big problem. Because if he is declared to be the guilty sinner and is never justified from that verdict and we are in him, then we are guilty sinners. That's why Paul says elsewhere, speaking of the resurrection, if, if, he, if Christ is not raised from the dead and if we're not raised, we're still dead in our sins. Every one of us is still a guilty sinner before God unless Jesus is justified before we are justified. He must be justified before anyone else can be. And where does that take place? Well, it is in his resurrection. The verdict of guilty sinner pronounced upon him at the, cro at the cross, where the one who was manifested in the flesh was overturned as he is justified in the spirit as his, at his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is his justification. It is the overturning of that verdict, guilty, damnable sinner. And unless that declaration of justification is made of Christ first, it can never be made of you and me, period. Your justification is dependent upon his justification. A justification, which by the way, didn't play, take place in a corner in secret. It was public before the entire world, before the entire cosmos. This is such a beautiful thing. We can get so theological and, and complicated, and I, I like that in some ways in talking about these things. But if you want to explain to a little child, how are you justified? You point to Jesus who was raised from the dead. He was acquitted from the charge of guilty sinner. There's your justification, little child. The truth is that his justification, his resurrection is the basis for your justification. And that's seen perhaps nowhere more indisputably to be true than by Paul himself when he says in Romans 4.25, he, he was raised for our justification. We only were able to make it through the first two of those stanzas. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas recently, but I can say this, uh, don't just have a Merry Christmas. If you possess the mystery of godliness, have a godly Christmas.
because the true mystery of godliness is found in the one who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, how we thank you that the mystery of our faith is found in a person as we see the one who was manifested in the flesh, who was declared to be the the quintessential sinner on the cross, though he had no sin of his own, he was saddled with our sin. He was delivered over for our trespasses. He was declared guilty, guilty, guilty. And yet, precisely because he really did have no sin of his own, he could not remain under the power of death, nor under the power of that verdict And we thank you that you acquitted him. You justified him in the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit's power, by his resurrection from the dead. And if we doubt our standing before you, and we do, may we look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and draw draw great strength, great confidence that as he, our resurrected head, stands before you acquitted, declared not guilty, We in him now are no longer guilty. And may his life be worked in us now so that we may not pursue godliness through all sorts of crazy, the crazy paths that this world comes up with, but by our communion with the one who is the true mystery of godliness, even Jesus Christ himself. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.